Hey listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at RestoreSBY.org. Enjoy the episode. Tonight, we're going to jump into the text, and I've got a long set of, um, of text for you this evening. I had a conversation with somebody this past week, and we were lamenting the fact that within the American church, the Bible is not really read that much, um, and it's not really something that is studied too much. I'm going to read, unashamedly, I'm going to read one whole chapter of the Old Testament to us, and we're going to dip into um, the plague narrative where Moses is attempting to lead the people out of Egyptian servitude and slavery and bondage. And in order to get the people from point A to point B, there are 10 signs or 10 plagues that take place because Pharaoh will not let these people go. The text keeps saying that his heart is hard and there's these signs that are being put forth so that it can convince him to let them go, but he's not. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 8 this evening. And I would encourage you to do what you need to do to focus and to hear these words of the Lord this evening. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps. The land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. And the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if our sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. The word of God for the people of God. So tonight I want to talk about a theme that emerges from this passage that we looked at, this lengthy passage, particularly the bit where Moses is praying for his enemy, for the enemy of this narrative, where Moses is entrusted with the task to go and to say, let these people go. And when Pharaoh responds and says, okay, I'll let you go, just pray for me. And Moses engages in that where he begins to cry out on behalf of his enemy. Now, before we get there, and I, to be honest, I don't know how this ties in except to say that throughout the conversations that I have with a lot of you, when we're sitting in Rise Up Coffee and we're discussing the Bible and, and the difficulties that you may or may not have with it, this comes up all the time, and I want to go ahead and address it while we're here. And let me just say that one of the um, perks of this job, I think, is being able to spend time with you and to talk honestly and openly about where we are in our relationship with Jesus. And I get the, the distinct privilege of being able to listen to your concerns and listen to your heart and listen to your doubts and your struggles and, and the things that are going on in your life that are making perhaps following Jesus a little bit difficult. On the other side of that same coin, I also get the distinct honor and privilege to hear the moments in your life when things are going great and you feel so close. 
and your walk with Jesus is going so well and I gain encouragement and strength from those conversations as much as I do from the other conversations. But in this passage, I see something that I think is worth talking about. Namely, we're, we're looking at the traditions of the plagues in the Old Testament. Now, the Exodus is a story that is massively important for the Israelite people all throughout the Old Testament. They keep going back to this moment when God leads his people out of bondage and slavery and servitude and takes them into freedom and life and hope. We see this moment where God acts with power on behalf of his people. And throughout, say, the, the Psalms, for example, they keep looking back to say, hey, God, I'm in the pit. I'm in the midst of a struggle. I'm in the midst of this moment in my life where you seem to be absent. Remember that thing way back when, when you led your people out of slavery and servitude into freedom and life and hope? Do that again. I need you, God, to do that work again in my life. And we see this underlying theme throughout the Old Testament where the God of the Exodus becomes the God of the Exoduses in our own lives and in the lives of his people way back when. This story was of massive importance for Israel as they were beginning to develop who they were and who God was calling them to be. There's traditions about the Exodus. There's also traditions about the plagues. And I find this fascinating, so we're going to go ahead and talk about it for a few minutes as we get into our main talk, which is about praying for our enemies, which is difficult in a very different way. But in this tradition of the plagues, we have a couple of other texts that I think are worth noting here. Psalm 78, for example, this is one of the narrative or the storytelling psalms where the psalmist retells Israel's history. It's not the story of the psalmist's life in particular. It's the story of Israel as a people, their life. Looking back over what God has done in creation and what God has done through the patriarchs and what God has done through the Exodus, and they retell the story of the plagues when God demonstrates his power over Egypt and over Pharaoh and all of the Egyptian gods. Because remember, these plagues where God, for example, turns the lights off, when we have this massive darkness, this was a polemic against the Egyptian gods, the sun god that everyone worshipped and was so invested in. Or the plague that we read about tonight where frogs come up out of the Nile and they're everywhere. Did you get an image of that in your mind as we were reading? They're everywhere. They're in the house, they're in the bed, they're in the flower bowl, they're in the kneading troughs, they're all over the place. You're just walking and you're stepping on frogs. It's like a nice spring night when you're driving down a road here and it's just rained and you're riding and it's like bloop, bloop. You know what I'm talking about? Except times that by 50 or so, and there's frogs all over the place. Now, what you might not know if you weren't here last week, there was frog imagery that helped the Egyptian people to understand a goddess named Hecate, who was the goddess of fertility. And she's depicted as a goddess with a frog head. So it's not just this cool party trick where frogs are coming up and they're getting all over the place and into all these things. God is selectively saying, hey, Egypt, all those gods that you have, I'm better than those gods. It's an amazing display of power that God is showing to his people and also showing to the Egyptians. There's an underlying current throughout these stories where it keeps saying, so that they might know who Yahweh is. And here, this story that's retold in Psalm 78, one of the storytelling psalms or the narrative psalms, the account of the plagues looks different. 
There's a different order. There's a different number of them. In the Exodus story, there's 10. And here in this first Psalm that we're gonna look at in Psalm 78, there's only seven, and they show up in a different order. And for some folks, especially for some evangelical Christians, this is the stuff where you're like, oh no, what am I supposed to do with this? Because the Bible, as far as I know, is fill in the blank with any sort of descriptive word that we use, but these two stories do not match completely. Same thing if we look at Psalm 105, where there's a retelling of the plague tradition, and there's eight plagues, and again, they're in a different order as well. We could even just look at the very first one that's listed in, in Psalm 105. Darkness is the first plague that is listed. In the Exodus story that we're looking at, it's the ninth plague that is listed before climactically the firstborn Egyptians are killed. But we have a different order, we have a different number, we have different traditions of the plagues. Now look at this fancy little diagram that I made for you guys that I ripped off some, from some commentators, but it looks professional, does it not? Great, thank you, the two of you that care about good graphing. Okay, but here we see in the Exodus story, there are three series of three plagues, and there's similar um, structure to each one. The first plague of each series the blood, the flies, and the hail. You can see that there's a meeting that takes place where Moses and Aaron go out to the Nile and they wait for Pharaoh to show up in the morning to do whatever it is that Pharaoh does in the Nile in the morning. Take a bath, get some water. I, I don't know, but he, he's going to be there and they are sent to meet him as he's going out to talk to him about the plagues that are upcoming. This happens in the morning. The second plague in each of the three series here happens in the palace where Pharaoh does not heed the warning. It goes off and then God plagues the people or sends this sign to the people. And then Moses and Aaron find themselves within the palace where they're talking to Pharaoh. Same sort of thing happens in the first series, the second series, and the third series, which is followed by the third plague in each of these series, which is unannounced, and it just shows up in each of these three series. So there's similarities in the way that the author is, is telling the story from plague one to plague 10. Can you see that? You're wondering what in the world this has to do with anything, and I'm hoping that I can tie some of these loose ends up for you, but what I basically just want to show you here in this, before I get there, sorry, um, there's also some people that would say the first series is water-based plagues, so you've got the Nile that turns to blood, and then you've got frogs who come out of the Nile, and then you've got gnats who are, have something to do with the water. They kind of are infested there in the waters of the Nile. You buy that? Okay, good. Second series, it's about people and animals. The flies show up and they just are a nuisance to the people. Uh, they're also destroying the land, it says. The, the livestock is then plagued and then boils show up on the skin of the animals and the people. And then in the last three, there are airborne menaces, as Carol Myers says. Or the staff and who's doing these plagues. Aaron is the main character in the first three. Moses is the main character in the last three. And then Moses and God share the, the second series there with the flies and the livestock and the boils. All of this has to demonstrate this point to us. It says, the plague traditions were relatively fluid and malleable enough to be fashioned in different ways for different contexts. This is massively important because most of our conversations that we have about the Bible at Rise Up Coffee as I'm sipping on my Cortado 
is about this stuff because you've got two different stories that tell the same passage in very different ways. And what this author is saying about the plague narratives, it's a tradition that is relatively fluid and malleable and it can be shaped for different contexts. He says the exact details of the plagues were not a matter of great concern. What mattered most was the impact of the account. In other words, there is literary artistry and shaping to the plague narratives. I find this absolutely fascinating, guys. If you cannot tell, I'm riding pretty high right now. The reason why this is important, though, is because the Bible is an ancient book, and this is how ancient people told history. They did not care about the same things that we care about. When we are writing history, we look to the newspapers or what have you, and you get a bullet-by-bullet account of what happened, even though newspapers are biased as well. We all know that. But we think that our history writing is different. It's objective reporting on the facts. And we import that and we want our Bible to be that. But for an ancient audience, what they were doing is they were taking these stories and shaping them for different contexts and different purposes to prove different theological and ethical points. And this isn't just true about the literary artistry or shaping of the plagues. This is true about the literary artistry and the shaping of the entire Bible. When we sit at Rise Up Coffee and you guys are having difficulties understanding why this story looks different than that story, understand that just at a broad base level, this is how the ancient people told their stories. They were so excited about what God has done in their past that they told these stories over and over for different purposes at different times for different theological and ethical points to be made. This is why in the Old Testament we have two, not one, but two stories of Israel's monarchy, the division of the kingdom, its eventual demise, and exile into Babylon. The books of Samuel and Kings tell this story, and the books of Chronicles tell this story. But if you compare them, they look radically different because they're written at different times for different audiences for different purposes. For the Chronicles, uh, it's one of the last books that was included in uh, the Hebrew Bible, or at least it's a later book in the Hebrew Bible. And the story that is being told here is trying to address this main question. Does God even care about us? And the author of Chronicles, what he does is awesome. And we skip over it in our yearly reading. He gives us nine chapters of genealogy taking it all the way back to Adam to say definitively to this people, he absolutely cares about you because you are still his people. And here's nine chapters to prove it. You're in the family and God still cares about you and he's still working out his plan in your life even though you're in the midst of Babylonian exile. This is why we also have not one, not two, not three, but four gospel accounts of Jesus that tell the story in dramatically different ways for different purposes, for a different audience. And it's something to be treasured. It's not that we want to reduce it and find just the facts. Instead, we want to celebrate the diversity that we have in our text and understand that this is how God is filling out the questions that we might have about his son. It's awesome. So when we come to the book of Exodus, we have to understand that there's shaping that's going on here and there's a literary artistry that's happening in this text. Now, do not leave here and say, you know what Josh said? Because if it starts like that, you're probably gonna be wrong, all right? 
I wholeheartedly believe that there is an underlying historical current to the stories that we have in Exodus. Side note, just because I, I like saying this and I need to say this, I also think that there is an underlying historical context uh, underlying the resurrection. That's our, that's our entire faith is based on this one climactic event of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. However, the way that the stories are told, they're shaped into this beautiful depiction of what God needs to communicate to his people at that time. Okay? Now, that's fun stuff to think about, and we might pick that up later, but for right now, just let that simmer and let that soak, and when you open up your Bible and you read these stories, remember this. It's a history that is shaped to tell us something theologically pertinent about who God is and who we should be as a result. It's absolutely compelling and beautiful, but tonight I wanna to talk about praying for our enemies. This won't take too long, so you'll be okay. I do think that when we're able to get beyond the details of these plague narratives, we can see at least in this chapter an underlying thread where Moses is praying for his enemies, which begs the question about us and how we pray for our enemies. After um, Pharaoh is seeing the results of the plague of the frogs, they're everywhere. They're in the beds, they're in the houses, they're in the bowls, they're in the kneading troughs, they're all over the people, they're everywhere. And he says to Moses, Moses, pray for me and treat the Lord on my behalf. Now think about this for a moment, if you will. This is the guy that has made Moses' life absolutely dreadful. This is the guy that has been overseeing the slavery and servitude of Moses' people. This is the guy who is number one in the empire and only concerned about building his empire and will not seemingly care one iota about the people that it takes for him to be made high. And he says to Moses, pray for me. Pray for me, and I'll let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. One uh, commentator, this is Walter Brueggemann, he says, Pharaoh requests that Moses and Aaron make supplication to Yahweh, and in this appeal, Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh concedes three matters, that the frogs are genuinely a problem beyond his capacity. Remember that bit where the Egyptian magicians, they also do the trick? I think that's odd, right? There's frogs everywhere, and they say, I know what to do, we will make more. More frogs. He concedes that this is a problem beyond his capacity. It's certainly beyond the capacity of his magicians. He's also conceding that Moses and Aaron can do for him what he cannot do for himself, and this is huge. This is the guy that will not listen to them at all. But here in this passage, when he says, pray for me, he's saying, you can do something for me that I cannot do for myself. And most importantly, he's conceding that Yahweh can do what he cannot do, namely revoke the threat and remove the frogs. What Pharaoh is identifying here is Moses' role as a prophet. This guy's gotten nowhere with Pharaoh up to this point, but here he's saying, listen, I understand that you are the mediator between your God and me in this particular moment. Can you please talk to him so that the frogs go away because there's nothing that I or my magicians can do in order for that to happen. 
He's giving credence to who Moses is and the job that Moses has to do. And in so doing, there is a radical reversal of power. Pharaoh has been the one that can say or do whatever it is that he wants to do. He has been playing with these people. He's been stringing them along. He will continue to do that. But here he's beginning to make concessions to Moses and Aaron as if to say, listen, I... I, I can't quite quantify this, but it seems that your God has something going on, and it seems like I need him in this moment to make these frogs go away. Can you please take care of that for me? And now Moses is in the driver's seat. Um, what's that? Uh, come again? What, what would you like me to do? You know, there's this moment where perhaps Moses is beginning to sense this power that has been infused to him by Pharaoh. And there's a radical reversal of power that only comes through prayer. Hold on to that, okay? So we have this radical reversal of power. And now I say this a lot and it doesn't stop me. This is kind of a bad way to read the Bible, Okay, so I'll just go ahead and model it for the 75 or so of you in the room right now. But to take this story and to, to moralize it and then make it our story and ask what we might do. But here, think about this for a second because I think this is important as to where we're going. Moses' enemy says, pray for me. Would you? Would you pray for your enemy to have whatever is um, hurting them or making their life difficult? Would you pray for it to end? And if you did pray, how would you pray? And I'm asking you here for, for five seconds to think about your prayer life and to think about how you engage in the issues that your enemies, whoever they might be, how you pray for those people. Is it a, and eh, help them too. Or is it a you hitting the floor on your knees and treating God on behalf of the people that have made your life difficult? Listen to what happens with Moses. It says, after Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord about the frogs that he had brought on Pharaoh. Now, this is the same word that's used here in an earlier context in chapter two, where it says the Israelites who were groaning in their slavery, they are crying out. Same verb. What's happening with Moses and the way that he is petitioning God on behalf of his enemy is the same that the slaves, God's people, are crying out to God to do something now because they can't handle it anymore. They're groaning in their slavery. They're crying out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God and we get these climactic and beautiful verses. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them or you could translate that last clause. God looked at them and he knew. He acknowledged because his people were saying, do something. You've got to do something. You've promised to love us. You've promised to bless us. You've promised to give us this land. And here we are, we're getting beat and we're being worked to the bone. And we need you, God, to do something now. And God hears and he remembers and he sees and he knows. And Moses, when he leaves the palace, says that he cries out, 
for God to relieve Pharaoh in the same way that the Israelite slaves were crying out for God to bring their slavery to an end. Wrap your mind around that. This was not the tack on prayer. This was not the casual drive down the road and think for two seconds about this person or that person. This was not the, oh, I'll pray for you. Dear God, help this person. And then you go about your day and you don't ever pray for them again. We like to do that. I used to know a guy that would say something to this effect. He'd say, I'm fasting for you right now. And I always thought like, okay, yeah, I know because I see you and you're not eating anything. How long is this fast going to last, you think? You know, it's just like one of those Christian-y things where like, I'm fasting for you right now in this moment. I'm going to McDonald's though where I can get a huge Big Mac. I won't be fasting then, but right now I am. I, I, did, I never knew what to do with that. But the intensity with which Moses is crying out at least from a verbal connection, it's the same intensity that the Israelites are groaning and crying out for their own release. And it works to some degree. The frogs go away, but it also doesn't work because at the end it says, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, when the frogs were taken care of, even though I love it, they're just dead and there's piles of them, heaps of them, it says, and the land reeked because of them. No concept what that may or may not have smelled like, but it's not a, not a good thing to have piles of dead frogs happen in here. But it says that he saw there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. This guy, he's playing the game here a bit. And this happens again with the plagues of the gnats, where they're just infesting the people and they're all over the place. And Pharaoh says he's gonna do something and then he just kind of backs away because his heart is hard. And one commentator says, one might have thought that Moses would refuse and or that God would decline to listen to the plea at least after the first time that Pharaoh reneged on his word. Next time, Pharaoh, let's have the action first and then we'll have the prayer and the relief. But he says, praying for your oppressors isn't like that. You carry on praying for them even when they carry on deceiving you. Moses pleads like someone speaking in court on behalf of a friend. He cries out to God on Pharaoh's behalf, praying for your oppressors is not like that, he says. You keep on praying even when they carry on deceiving you. So let's make this personal. What does it look like when we pray for our Enemies, And I want to put that in quotes because I think that sometimes the way that Christians talk about being persecuted in America is shameful. Now, I do understand that for some of you, your lives might be difficult and there might be people in your lives that have made your life difficult might not even be the word here. Whether you're in a situation where you're facing abuse, whether that be physical or verbal, where you're in a situation with the relationships that are absolutely broken. How is it, what does it look like when we begin to pray for those people in our lives? And I know that as I stand up here as a pastor, like that, that hasn't been my story. So even when I'm trying to think through who my enemies are, like my personal enemies at this time, it's pretty small, the inconveniences that are thrown at me, but still the difficulties in praying for those people that have made my life or my job or my vocation as a pastor difficult. It's hard for me to conjure up that peace and freedom and hope because I want to hold on to the bitterness and the anger and the rage. 
This is a classic passage from Matthew 5. It's Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount where he's, he's in this mode of teaching where he keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is upping the ante on the Old Testament law here. He's making the law, in a sense, even more difficult because it's, now it's not just about committing adultery. It's, now it's not even thinking about committing adultery. Okay, like he's, he's kind of pushing us beyond just the letter of the law to the actual heart of the law. And what he says here is, is pertinent for our conversation. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That first line there, love your neighbor, is a quote from the Old Testament in Leviticus. Hate your enemy is not so much a, a biblical quote, but it might be how people were acting in certain situations. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, this is Jesus, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you might be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's all kinds of stuff that we could talk about in this passage, but really, I just want to focus in on that italicized phrase in the slide right before this where it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in that moment, I believe that you will receive a radical reversal of power because when people oppress you and when people... Um, hate on you and when people make your life difficult, the tendency is for us to clamp up and to hold on to that bitterness and that resentment. But when we pray, actively pray for those people, there's a reversal where we do not allow them to have power over us. But not only that, it's a radical reversal of attitude. Now, when we begin to pray, actively pray for these people, it is not just this resentment and this bitterness that we have. Our thoughts and our mind is wrapped around the active prayers that we have on behalf of these people and their family and their jobs and their relationship with Jesus. And it's not just a radical reversal of our attitude. It's a radical reversal of the hope that we have for these people, where at one point, perhaps we wished for them to fail. We wish for them to be exposed. We wish for them to have recompense dealed out to them. But here, the hope that we have is for reconciliation between them and Jesus and between them and us. There's a radical reversal that takes place when we live into this and we take Jesus at his word and we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. Now understand that when Jesus was talking about this, I think that he was going beyond the minor quibbles that we have with folks at work. I think that he was talking about a context in which these people might very well die because they say, you know what, I don't follow Caesar, I follow this Jesus guy. Well, there's a difference here in the, in the levels of persecution, which I think is what I was trying to get at before. As a pastor, the only relevant story that I know off the top of my head has to do with this guy. His name's Greg Boyd. He's a pastor in Minnesota. He recently just wrote a massive 1,500-page book on uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, which is, we should read that at some point, talk about it. We'll get back together in 2020 when we've all had a chance to read 1,500 pages. What happened at one point in his life, now he's a progressive pastor, He's a Baptist pastor, but he had this idea that he was kind of promoting, um, I think it was like mid-90s, maybe late 90s or so, it's called open theism, where he says, and this is not the point, but just because it's interesting, we'll throw it out there. He was saying that God's knowledge is not certain on every issue. 
Instead, God withholds some knowledge that he has about me or you in order to preserve real relationship with us so that when we pray, God can act accordingly to our prayers. Okay, just tuck that away and say, well, that doesn't sound right. You're entitled to that opinion. A lot of people were because this is the point of the story. When people heard about this, and he wasn't alone, there was a group of people that were thinking this along with him. There were some very famous pastors, also in Minnesota, who basically made it their job to get him removed from the school that he was teaching at and to get him kicked out of the church that he had planted himself and to get him removed from a lot of these societies because he wasn't Baptist enough because of these new ideas. And if you've ever heard Greg Boyd preach, you'd know that this is kind of crazy thinking. But what's happening with with Greg Boyd is in the midst of this, he was forced to make a decision on how he was going to handle the people that were making his life difficult and his ministry difficult and his his family difficult and, and everything about him. And this is what he says about this. He said, I strongly sense that the Lord gave me an assignment during this time I was to carry out for a year to help me through this period. Every single day, he says, I was to pray for the well-being of those who were leading this crusade to have me fired and to have me excommunicated and to have me kicked out of the family. Initially, this was really hard, but I soon found that this exercise freed me from the cancer of bitterness and even empowered me to genuinely love my enemy. This deepened my conviction about the importance of obeying Jesus's command to love, serve, and pray for those who persecute us. I encourage anyone who is harboring anger towards someone to engage in this daily exercise. Thank you, Greg Boyd. As a pastor, I need to hear that. As a follower of Jesus, you need to hear that. The encouragement to get on your knees and pray for those that you are having struggles with in whatever aspect of your life that struggle is taking place, relationally, vocationally, uh, in your family, those sorts of different things. If you make it your job for a month or for six months or for one year to actively pray, It will be a radical reversal of power and attitude and hope where you will not want those people to fall off a cliff. You will want those people to love Jesus with more tenacity and you will want, in his context, their churches to thrive and and people to meet Jesus because of what's going on, because of those people who might even actively be rooting against you. What does it look like when we pray for our enemies? Do we have any stories where that has been our MO? Or do we so often just shrink back into the bitterness and the resentment and the anger? Last thought. It's easy for us to sit here and think, and maybe we even have a list right now of the people. There's people that are coming to your mind about they've made your life difficult, and you start thinking, well, I should pray for this person. And underline that is, well, I should pray for this person because they've been terrible to me. And we have this this little list of people. Now, I believe that that's valid. However, when we get so focused on me or even on us, we are blind to the prayers that we need to be offering for others and the enemies that they have, especially when you're thinking about a global level or even a national level, the persecution and the oppression, the prejudice the profiling, the things that happen even within our own country that may or may not affect us and the prayers that we may or may not be praying on behalf of those people. 
the people groups that have been ostracized and marginalized and pushed out and kicked out, the people that have tried to come to church, but everybody says, nope, can't come because of X, Y, and Z, the people that have tried, in a sense, to, to be in these places, they desperately need advocates. Are we praying for the enemies of other people or is our prayer life just so consumed by the people that are making our life difficult that we're blind to the difficulties that other people are having? Blind to the issues in the world where persecution is not just they're trying to get me to be kicked out of my job, but they're trying to kill me. Do we have any sort of consciousness towards these big issues where Jesus is begging his people to pray? Or are we just concerned with us? I hope that tonight um, we begin to see Moses and, and perhaps take some of his example. Now, again, I don't think this is a great way to read this story, but when Moses goes and he cries out, taking on that same language of the people who were in oppression and slavery and servitude, he's crying out with the same tenacity. Can we as God's people take that on ourselves and cry out with the same sort of tenacity on behalf of other people that we know or that we know exist and begin to entreat God on their behalf, saying, God, do something in the same way that the Old Testament saints would say, God, as you led those people out of slavery and servitude into freedom and hope, we are asking that you would do the same again through the power of your spirit and through the blood of Jesus Christ. Will you do something? And he's asking us to become a part of that beautiful global ministry where it's not just about us, but it's about all of God's people and if we can take on the same tone and cry out to the Lord on their behalf, what would it look like? What would it look like? I hope that tonight um, we are inspired and perhaps that task begins here and now because there's people in these seats that are broken and are hurting and they're asking big questions and they've had prayers that don't seem to be answered in the ways that they have wanted them to be answered and now they're in that stage where they're saying, God, do you even care? And if we can have the eyes to see that and the prayers to pray on their behalf, this place can be changed and this town, I believe, can be changed and people can come to know Jesus because we are doing what Jesus tells us to do loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us and for those who persecute others. Can we join in that fight? Can we tap into this power of prayer and understand what Jesus is asking us to do in our lives on behalf of others? And can we wait expectantly and hopefully to see these prayers come to fruition where God shows up and where we don't harden our hearts when we see it, but we become changed because of it. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.